Welcome to Supply Chain Radio. My name is Greg Kiefer, and today I'm here with John Atherton. Welcome, John. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate you having me into the show here. Glad to have you. So, you know, one of the topics that's kind of front and center in the news today is this West Coast port slowdown issue. Here's the basics of what's going on. You got two sides to the argument. On one side, you have this group called the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. This is the ILWU, you may have read about it in the paper, and that's a collection of workers that, that operate the ports. On the other side of the argument is the Pacific Maritime Association, or PMA, and that's a collection of 29 or 30 companies that operate the ports on the West Coast. So these two organizations are at odds, mainly around wages and benefits for the members of the ILWU. And uh, you know, if you if you weren't aware, some of the roles in that organization can you know make a good dollar there, Greg. So for average average examples, clerks can make two hundred thousand dollars, and bosses are you know three hundred thousand dollars or more. So, what are they doing? Ports slow down. I mean, what's happening there? I mean, for the average person, what is what is that? Yeah. So basically, what that means is again, the PMA terminal operators are in the business of owning infrastructure. They own real estate. They erect cranes and put in rail lines. But they rely on the members of the ILWU to actually operate it. So they have skilled laborers who operate the cranes, drive the trucks. And essentially what's happened is the ILWU has slowed down their rate of work and also the number of workers that they release into the separate shifts to operate the ports. So if you hear slow down, it means, yeah, it's working, but it's really slow or flat out shut down at times. And again, this is across the states of California, Oregon and Washington. Uh, which collectively across containerized shipments and non-containerized is about 30 ports in total. Yeah, I actually saw some data on that. And in days, you're talking about kind of last year, like a year ago, 2013 Q4, it was taking about two, three days to get a container through, and now it's about seven. Yeah, so there you go, 2x, and you kind of extrapolate that out across not thousands of shipments, but hundreds of thousands of shipments. And that's a significant time wasted. Right. So this has been going on for quite a while. What does this mean? I mean, you kind of touched on it just a second ago, but for those retailers and those manufacturers that move the vast amount of volume internationally through those ports, what does it mean for them? What happens? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me bring you some some data points to illustrate the, the significance of the impact. I researched these points, uh, Greg, and, and some say that up to 40% of all the U.S. trade moves through these ports. So, so that's a significant wow. portion. Just over 12% of the U.S. GDP through the same ports. And you know the daily amount of lost commerce tied up in this slowdown is close to $2.1 billion U.S. That's pretty significant. And the other thing I'll point out, it's not just imports. Now, of course, you and I and our wives, who are consumers here in the U.S. market, think about oh, the shipments of electronics uh, are slowed down, and that's true. We, we could see some stockouts on the shelves in the major retail brands and outlets, but it's also an export issue. So you have U.S.-based agriculture and farmers that are trying to ship produce and vegetables overseas, apples and, and other deliverables into Asia and other parts of the world that are also equally affected. And the last thing I'll mention, speaking geographically around the infrastructure, it's not just cargo that enters into the West Coast or exits the West Coast, because a lot of that is actually destined for the Midwest and the East Coast. Right. So this is really a nationwide problem. Right, right. And going back to the the export farmer stuff, I think I read something in Q4 about how you couldn't get French fries in McDonald's in Japan because potatoes couldn't be shipped, right? Yeah, I've heard crazier stories, but that, that's definitely one believable example. What are some of the tactics 
that a company that exports or imports can do to kind of avoid or mitigate this this problem and this choke point in the supply chain? Yeah, I think there are lots of things that companies can do. The way I've always thought of it, Greg, is kind of break that down into two main categories, kind of strategic maneuvers and philosophies, and the other are maybe more operational. You know, I think some of the examples of a strategic viewpoint, first of all, is that, well, to be honest, stuff happens. This is the nature of the global supply chain. It comes with risk, you know, at every turn. The second is that I think it really heightens and enhances the need to maintain good relations with your partners. And here, for example, I'm speaking of ocean and air freight carriers. So you need to have strong relations with them so they can help you out through these times. And the third there is just this idea of being flexible and being able to set up your supply chain in a way where you're not set in concrete and you can quickly change. And so those are some strategic concepts that a lot of my customers are talking about. And then maybe next level down to share with you some some more tactical examples would be, first of all, knowing what your exposure is. So a lot of customers think of that as visibility, knowing the orders and shipments that are tied up in this this, uh, log jam. The second would be have, you know, a whole slew of alternative routings to get cargo to market that avoid the West Coast ports. Third would be actually taking on insurance policies on these situations, and that can be used more broadly against any natural disaster in the supply chain. And finally, I would say, you know, a best practice is to actually practice this situation, which not a lot of customers do. You know, they get in the rhythm of operating their supply chains, and that's great. It's on a repetitive sequence, but they never really stop and practice for situations like this. So, so that's a recommendation I would have for companies. Right. And I guess kind of in conclusion here, you know, you're out in the field talking to a lot of big, large enterprises that have global supply chains that are moving goods all around the world, all different kinds of products and commodities. Would you say, just from your unbiased observation, that more have a handle on it than those that don't, or are companies actually dealing with it pretty well? I mean, what's your general assessment? Yeah, I mean, my my general assessment is that there is a wide variety and maybe, you know, three broad categories, you know, those that are just operating on status quo and can maybe get by. Those that are falling behind and are actually suffering from the situation like this on lost revenue or higher costs. But I think there's the last group was actually, you know, a step ahead. You know, they've been proactive in their strategies. You know, they've been agile in the way they've set up their networks and they're ready for changes like this. Right, right. From what I can read, it doesn't seem like it's going to go away anytime soon. I expect we'll see a lot of people fall into that third category as time goes because you can only absorb so many blows to your supply chain. Yeah, yeah, that's right. These things are going to be unavoidable. Again, whether it's a political-related situation or a natural disaster, they all fall into this broad category of risk. Right. And to a certain extent, the global supply chain is all about managing risk. Right. So that's probably one of the key headlines coming away from this. Okay. Well, John, thanks for, thanks for joining us today. This is Greg Kiefer on Supply Chain Radio. We are signing off. Mm-hmm.